This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, a collaboration with the public radio program Making Contact. Activist Kat Brooks of San Francisco's Anti-Police Terror Project is joined in conversation by journalist Manolia Charlatan of the Media Consortium to discuss race, police violence, and criminal justice reform. The conversation was recorded on March 16, 2016, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. I'm Haitian, and so one of the greetings from my homeland um, is a way for us to honor each other. So um, what I say, I say, and you respond, which means honor, respect. So I'll say, and that is, um, I have to say, this is a privilege to be in conversation with Kat. Your work has been instrumental. And when we think about Black Lives Matter, women like Kat embody this. You know, it's not some sort of um, abstract or, you know, professional protesters as we like to he- we hear in many of the mainstream corporate media, but it's, it's human beings who are putting their lives and their families on the line to fight for a more just society where people can just live and their skin color and their gender and who they love no longer matters. That's the, ju- that's the just society we're fighting for. So first of all, thank you for your work. Thank you, sis. Thank you for yours. And um, so we're going to just get right into it. You know, you heard the long bios. The bios always freak me out because I'm like, who are you talking about? <laughs> um, so I want to ask you, how did you come to this work? You know, I was raised in a radical family. Uh, my mom was a radical feminist. My father was the first black stagehand in Las Vegas. I was born and raised in Las Vegas. Which I think is also really critical to sort of my development. Um, back then, it was a very small town. You get anywhere mm-hmm. in minutes. Very segregated town, right? And so my early experiences with the police were watching them beat up my dad. Um, and then my dad was stolen from me by America's concentration camps when I was eight. And so that forever altered um, my view of law enforcement. So anyway, flash forward. You know, I got radicalized in college like everybody else. And then... Um, was really doing work in Los Angeles about a, around a bunch of issues that impact the quality of black life in America. And then Oscar got murdered in 2009. And um, it's funny, I hear, when I hear Alicia talking about um, watching the Trayvon Martin, and she, she says often that she doesn't know what it was, that was me with Oscar. I don't know what it was, but it was like I had a laser focus. I was like, this is it. I'm going to put my life on the line for this, this baby boy. And uh, it's sort of been a journey ever since. I hear you. Ashe. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about when you say anti-police terror. Um, walk us through what you see as alternatives to the current law enforcement law enforcement systems. Like what can law enforcement be doing differently that can value the citizens, the residents' lives, and what are some of the things that you are fighting for with your project and your initiative? 
Sure. So I think I should just first be really transparent. I actually don't believe that law enforcement in this country will ever do right by black people or brown people or disenfranchised people or poor people. It's not broken. It is doing exactly what it was designed to do, right? Uh, the first uh, police officers were slave catchers, and their job was to hunt you know, incarcerate and or kill black people, and they are still hunting, uh, incarcerating and or killing black people. So I just need to preface this with that. Um, that said, we have a crisis in this country, right? We know at least one a day, at least one a day, a black person is being gunned down by law enforcement. And so one of our early priorities has to be about how do we just stem the tide of black bodies that are dropping, right, on the, on the streets of America. And for the interim, that's gonna take radical reforms, right? And we have to get behind some of these radical reforms. So I think some of that does look like um, use of force policies, right? Some of that does look like body cameras. Some of that does look like calling for these police officers to be incarcerated. Um, I sat on a panel with a black police chief from um, Portland, and I, I was supposed to talk about what law enforcement could do and this brother actually said almost everything on my list, but the thing that shocked me the most that we both had on our list was apologize, right? Whether or not you even, it's not about admitting right or wrong or saying you know, that it was a justified shoot or not, it's just acknowledging that we are human beings and that this trauma has hit our community and being sorry for that, right? Um, it's about having some humanity um, or recognizing, having, human, having enough humanity to recognize the, hum, the humanity in the communities that you're policing and patrolling, right? Um, so I, that's, that's some, right, accountability, because I, I truly believe that the only way that the police are going to stop killing us is when we stop engaging with them. So part of the mission of the Anti-Police Terror Project is divestment, divestment from the system as it is and investment in empowering the people to take care of ourselves. Um, we believe firmly that it's a lie that the only way that we can be safe is in this current paradigm of policing in prisons. We don't believe that that's true. There's examples like the Zapatistas that, you know, where there's alternate methods. Um, and we recognize that we've got a lot of work to do to convince the masses, <laughs> right, that this paradigm is a lie, right? And it's hard work, even for us. Um, so we've got a no calling the police ever policy. And, and I say that very easily. It's very hard in practice, right? Mm -hmm. um, we work on community with community accountability circles when there's intercommunal drama or violence or interpersonal violence. Um, we've got a security team that's working on a model in the Laurel in Oakland um, where the business owners call them and not the police very often. Um, and then, um, you know, creating a support network for families um, when they are terrorized by police violence because um, when we looked around, we realized that not only is their loved one stolen, there's nowhere to go. They can't get victims of crime compensation. There's no one trying to find out who killed right, their loved one and or bring that person to justice. And then well-meaning activists like ourselves put their face on a banner and take to the streets and the family's like, what happened? So we think putting some policies in place for how you do that is also critical. So let's talk about the community accountable circles. This is fascinating to me because this is happening across the country where communities of color are taking um, sort of accountability into their own hands. So if you think about, for instance, um, alternate economic models like a SUSU, where folks don't go to a traditional bank, but they they borrow and lend from each other. Uh, I feel like this, this sort of um, community approach to accountability 
Can you talk a little bit about how does that work in practice? Like if, if you can give us an example of a recent sort of interpersonal, um, violent, or just disruption that was better solved and addressed by the community circle coming together. Sure. So first, I just want to say it's not a perfect science, right? Like there's no book that says this is how you do this and it will work. It's one size fit all, right? You've got different incidents. You've got people have their different emotional traumas. I mean, it's, it's a lot. What it is is a commitment by everybody involved that no matter what, we will not engage the state. It is a commitment by everybody involved to commit the resources and the time and the follow-up. So we did have an incident of um, interpersonal violence and all of the parties were very committed to not you know, engaging the state. And so we called on elders. We called on support for both parties, right? And this is where checking your own stuff becomes really important, right? Because we are talking about inner you know, personal violence, people have opinions about that and strong feelings about that. Um, we had DV experts in the room. We had spiritual healers in the room. We had a very wide range of folks. And Did you have mental health professionals as well? Not, yes, mental health professionals as well. And we provided space for both folks to tell their stories separately, right? And both folks to say what they needed in order to achieve resolution. And we're actually still in the process of negotiating those needs on both sides, right? While having some uh, agreements about who will be in what rooms. So it's about the community actually self-determining how it's going to resolve its own conflicts. But that's what we're talking about, self-determined black communities, right? Which means that we get to decide. And this, this part I think is really fascinating to me. When I hear all lives matter, um, I think about uh, erasure and silence and how violent that is, right? So that, that means I feel like when someone says, well, all lives matter, they're saying, you cannot claim that your black life matters. They don't even realize they're doing this, too. So the idea that a black community can self-determine its economics, self-determine how, how it's going to not necessarily police each other, but to do, resolve each other's conflicts. So even the idea of policing to abolish that thought, not just the state's law enforcement, right? Can you speak a little bit more about some of the violent narrative against this movement for Black Lives Matter and how that we're talking about um, state-sponsored violence on multiple levels. So there's the police brutality and police violence, but there's also narratives that foster this violence. Oh, it's exhausting, right? I mean, it's just at this point exhausting. Um, the narrative that this is a hate-filled movement I think is the piece that gets me in my gut the most, because to me, one of the biggest accomplishments, if not the biggest accomplishments of the Black Lives Matter movement is um, how much love, how much love is in the black community right now, right? We love each other, we love, and we love ourselves. The healing that is happening from the lies that we've been told about ourselves. It's, it's, a, it's, it's such a love-filled movement. I haven't felt this much love, right, since I got in the struggle. Um, but it's also about all forms of blackness. Yes. It doesn't matter what kind of black you is or isn't. Or what kind of black love you engage in. It right? doesn't matter what you look like, how you dress, we love you, you have a right to be here, you have a right to be in this movement. Please be in this movement, right? Yeah, I, what, but what fascinates me though around the, the, vi the violent narratives um, 
is the way, the way um, when black folks decide they're going to self-determine, you know, we're, we're talking about your, your, your hometown of Oakland, you know, one of the most powerful movements was born out of that in the Black Panther movement. This is the idea that these people were gonna decide that they're gonna take up arms, they're going to feed their kids, they're going to you know, nourish each other, that that itself was violent against the state. Can you talk about, so you're saying anti-police terror and a lot of white folks are hearing, you hate white people. There's like a direct translation problem happening. Can you talk about that in terms of when you say anti-police terror, what are you talking about? That's a, a, a great question because we have to explain that a lot. And it's actually not anti-police. As I always have to tell reporters, the dash is between the police and the terror, right? That we are anti-police that come into our communities and terrorize us. We are anti-living in communities where we have occupying armies. We are anti-having... Uh, mental health breakdowns every time we see red and blue lights behind us. We are anti-having police come in at 2 o'clock in the morning and steal our neighbors out of the home, right? We are anti-having police murder, abuse, sexually assault, terrorize, profile, assault, rape, maim black people. Those things we are unapologetically anti. And that sounds logical to me that any group of human beings, and I would even argue beings, Right, because I could see any group of—I mean, I know there are a lot of animal lovers in San Francisco in the Bay Area. Y'all love your dogs, y'all love your kitties, y'all love your gerbils. If it's furry, you love it. Black folk are furry too. No, seriously. So for me, um, I'm from the Caribbean, as you hear. You know, all my Haiti credentials, my my rep. Um, I got good street cred. There's an expression um, in Haitian Creole that's it, it, and we use it in, in English a lot too. I hear in this country too that oh, they treat them as you know worse than dogs. That's not true. If you terrorize a dog in this country, hi Michael Vick. Listen, Michael Vick got more time for killing that dog than Johannes Meserly got for executing Oscar Grant. Let's be clear when you think about it like that, yeah. And Johannes Mesley is working somewhere successfully, right? Most likely in law enforcement, right? Michael Vick's had a heck of a time, right? Right, Right. exactly. So I just wanted to um, bring that up, not to, I don't condone violence anywhere against any being. And one of the things um, that is, one of the challenges that we have as women of color is how do we center narratives of women of color who were brutalized by the system? And I want to talk to you, Kat, about, about, about that and your work. Because in your body, you are literally centering yourself in the narrative. But what are your thoughts around um, some of the work that still needs to be done around centering the women who have been victimized by the system? Like we know the names of the, of the boys. Um, but what about the names of our girls? What are some of the work that you think still needs to be done? And what are some of the work that you think has already started to, to begin to, to center women in these narratives? Right. So I think I'll start with the latter. You know, we've got the Say Her Name movement, which really is a movement now. We, I, I've been doing this work you know, for a minute now, and I've never heard people talk about black women 
the way in the way in which they are and as much as they are. There was a movement afoot. You know, last year on there was a national day of action where the names of women who've been murdered by police were lifted up in some really amazing ways, right? Um, that said, there's still tension even in the movement itself around that, right? Um, we hear things like, oh, you're trying to pit the sisters against the brothers, right? And no, actually, but if we're gonna eliminate our whole oppression, we have to be telling our whole story, right? Neither one of us can get there without the other. So I think that's still a challenge. And um, the sisters, frankly, are at the forefront of fighting for the brothers' lives, have been, is now, and will be, right? Always. Whenever I hear that, I get very confused. I'm like, you can't pit black women against black men because we we birth black men, we fight for black men, we nourish black men, you know. And when they when they gun down a black man, women are at the forefront fighting for justice. I've always been fascinated by that. Right. We see our sons, our fathers, our uncles, our brothers. Right. Um, babies that we give birth to, babies that we take responsibility for raising, even if they're not our own. So. But I'm also clear that white supremacy, since, you know, since it stole us and, and brought us over here, has been trying to pit the black woman against the black man, right? That was part of the way that they maintain control. So to me, it's a con I always say that we're all infected with white supremacy, not just white people. All of us are indoctrinated with that disease. And so we play that out amongst ourselves. That's part of the work now, is to figure out how we stop repeating the behavior patterns of our oppressor. Hmm. Um, speaking of centering black women, I have to give some shout out to our other media consortium members. Um, Truth Out has, has done a, a fantastic job of reaching out to women who are in the movement and getting their, um, getting their voices um, online. And Andrea Ritchie, actually, you know, the, the person whose brainchild, say her name is, wrote this piece called Say Her Name, What Centering Black Women Means, right? That that even exists today itself, I think folks don't realize how powerful that is. Just to have a black woman say, I'm going to help develop a whole movement where we talk about women who've been victimized and we're going to say her name and this is what it means to say her name. We just had, and it gave birth to these forums that are happening across the country, right? Um, the African American Policy Forum are doing these Say Her Name forums across the country. We just had one in o Oakland at the Impact Hub, packed house, um, six panels on the different ways in which violence against black women's bodies happen. Um, you have testifiers and commissioners, one of the most powerful events I've ever been a part of. And you just left there both full because of who was in the room and drained. Right, to sit inside of that much pain. Yeah. Um, speaking of pain, one of the things we've, one of the challenges we've had on social media is when younger people of color are pushing sort of video and images of um, either state, san state sanctioned or, you know, vigilante. Um, attacking um, a person of color or brutalizing or killing a person of color on video, that they're sharing that. And now we're seeing in the movement that folks are saying, wait a minute, don't rush to share that because that's, you're, you're further brutalizing folks. Do you have a, any thoughts around the use of social media to help get some of these stories and images out there to the people to know that, to, 
folks to be aware that it's happening, but also that it can also have a triggering effect for folks to see, because as a black person, you're seeing someone who looks like you being brutalized and it's on your feed. You know, like every time a new, there's a new name, you're reliving the trauma. Can you talk about those, th those two, how those two things are, stand next to each other? I think social media is where this, you know, th these two or three generations standing side by side, it's where we're at, right? And, and it is propelling the movement in ways that even just in, you know, 10 years ago, we couldn't have imagined. I think it's a critical tool. Um, for all of its drama and stuff, I'm a fan of black Twitter. Yes. You know, I just think it's yes. just one of the best things um, we have. Because um, black Twitter, to be frank, is like black church. It's bit. like the black club. It's like the black, you know, the skating rink. But the, it's basically, we're doing, we do, we, we're socializing publicly, right? And we have a platform for, to tell our stories and our voices or our 140 characters, right? Whatever that is, um, a way to connect with each other in real time about the struggle that we're experiencing, our shared struggle in this country. So I, I think that social media is critical. Um, I think we can be smarter and more strategic about how we use it. Um, I, there's a, a young person here that, you know, that's, they're going in that direction, and, and I think we need to take it seriously and, and engage in best practices that further the movement, right, um, and, and help us win. I've seen the comments about don't share the images. I guess because I recognize that if those images weren't shared, right, if Oscar faced down with his hands behind his back, if that image had not gone viral, mm -hmm. right, we would not have seen the movement. Um, if people weren't talking about Ferguson and showing Mike Brown's body lay in that street for four hours, we wouldn't have the movement that we had. And so I appreciate the trigger warnings, right, that that's become a practice on social media. Warning, you know, this is a trigger. And I think we've got to share more. I think there's still, even in the midst of, of this national, international movement for black life, there's still people that will look you in your, my neighbor will look me in my face and say, it's not that bad. <laughs> it's not really happening. Black people aren't experiencing anything worse than anyone else, right? And we forget that because my feed is all political people that share my political views, right? I forget, I have to go outside and talk to Aunt Margaret about what's really, what the rest of the world is seeing. Speaking of which, respectability is a challenge that a lot of Black Lives Matter activists are um, fighting against in their own families, in their own organizations, in their own communities, right? Can you talk a little bit about the difference of someone who's um, actively in a local Black Lives Matter chapter or who's in a local black organization that may be in solidarity with some, a Black Lives Matter action, for example, how, how respectability is something that really has no place. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, one of the beautiful things about this moment, this movement right now, right, is the unapologeticness of that. Um, that this, this moment in time, folks are being forced to draw a line. There's no more willy-nilly about it. You're either on the side of justice or you're not. You're either against the slaughter of black life or you're not. And there is no in-between, right? And, and that, I think, is incredibly powerful, one of the most incredibly powerful things about right now. So 
I've never had that issue, which is why I think there's certain rooms that I'm not allowed in um, <laughs> or people don't want me in. And the Bay doesn't have that issue, right? Actually, um, we call out everything and, and everyone here. Um, but this is life or death, right? You can't be respectable to the person that's threatening to murder you or the system that's in continued oppression of you, right? You have to be clear, concise, and determined about your call for the end, end the war on black life. I mean, even just that framing, mm -hmm. that's the demand. End the war on black life. And it is a war. That's not a word just thrown in there. That's the truth, right? We are at war. We are, we are having war waged against, against us. Nobody has time to be nice about asking folks to stop. Not when we've got a genocide happening in this country. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I found, um, so I shared this with a couple of my colleagues. Um, I spent a really surreal weekend with um, uncle of my partner who is a brown man who is a Trump supporter. Yes. Um, the journalist in me is fascinated, of course, because, you know, we care about, you know, we care about people's stories and we know why they think the way they think. And we want to, you know, we want to explore and examine all that stuff. But the black woman in me is terrified. I'm like, oh, you know, um, one of the things that came out of that conversation for me was anger and the and the power of some of our leaders' capacity to channel that anger. And what I'm finding is there's so much anger towards these young black people who are saying, no, no more of this. And we're going to be on the street, you're going to see us. There's so much anger at them as if they're being so audacious to say, stop. We're not going to accept this anymore. Can you talk about the channeling of that anger, you know, of channeling, whether it's, whether it's white anger, whether it's just economic anger that we're living in a country that's very unjust economically for a lot of people or there's lack of mobility, whatever it is. But there's so many leaders' capacity to channel that anger against people who are fighting for their liberation. You know, how, do you, how effective... Oh. You, see what, you know what I'm talking about? I think so. Yeah. I had this aha moment um, a couple of years ago. Because I, I do. I, I, I really try to think through why people push back on what to me makes total sense. Right? Um, how anybody could be angry at people saying, stop killing us. And then I had this aha moment when I was talking to this reporter. Americans, white Americans in particular, are very invested in this belief of America as the home of the brave, the land of the free, where everybody has opportunity. It's not just, like for us, I'm, I'm assuming you're in this camp too, those are just words that I grew up hearing, right? That's never been my reality here. It's not anything I'm attached to. I couldn't have put it into words when I was a kid, but I knew it was garbage, right? White Americans, a lot of them, not all, but a lot of them, that is a part of their identity. That is who they are at their core. That is ingrained in what they believe about themselves, their family, their own ability to be upwardly mobile. That's what allows them to say, we are the greatest country on earth. And the, black the movement for black lives mm -hmm. is challenging that. So it's not just challenging a concept, you're challenging someone's in identity, right? That they've invested a lot in and raised their children in. So I think that... Um, I think that 
I think that people like Donald Trump are savvy about that, right? And I actually think that Donald Trump is reacting to the same thing, right? Um, and some other stuff. Um, um, so I think they're savvy about that, and so they can channel that, right? That, that's the, what they're united around, right? Our America, this image of our America and our greatness. Um, and I think that's a really powerful motivator and very dangerous, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Because what do you do when someone challenges your identity? Everything that you know to be real and true. Right, right. White supremacy groups do it, right? They channel that anger, um, and, and it's the angry, you know, the Klan the and, and the white supremacy groups do what they accuse, like the black gangs are doing too. They find the disenfranchised. They find the young people that are on the streets and angry about so many things, mm -hmm. right? And then they channel that yeah. anger into a hate, right, of this other. Mm. This other that they can blame for everything that's gone wrong in their lives. Mm. Mm. I was thinking about this earlier, um, about the channeling of that. And what I think the movement for black lives is, it's channeling black love. Yes. Because you have to love yourself to say, my life matters, and therefore your life matters, right? And if I'm going to be in solidarity, um, we've seen the solidarity, what it can do in action, for instance. I'm, you know, I live in Chicago, even though I'm from New York, from Brooklyn, Republic of Brooklyn. Um, but living in Chicago, I have a, a whole new res newfound respect for the legacy of young people fighting against the system. So last night, they said, bye, Anita. They sure did. They sure did. And for those of you who don't know what that is, Anita Alvarez is the prosecutor that, uh, that enabled the cover-up um, of the young man who was shot 16 times. His name is Laquan McDonald. We lift his name. Um, and these, young, these are young black people with hardly any budget they organized and said, this prosecutor has to go. They had a campaign. And that Trump rally that many of you saw where they protested, it was them. It wasn't just, they weren't, all, they weren't just protesting Trump's xenophobia and bigotry and what he stands for and what his supporters stand for. They were also saying, you got to go, Anita. Right, so it was it was a powerful moment of local meeting national politics, where they were very they were very they they were handling two things that they were multitasking is what they were doing. It was multitasking. <laughs> <laughs> they were handling what was unjust in the local system, in which the black establishment, the black political establishment, was like these little, where these little kids coming from? Like what are y'all doing? You know, that's not how we do things here. We if the mayor invites you for a private backroom talk, you sit, you go talk to the mayor, you know, and these black, these black kids are like, no, we're not going to do that. Mm-mm, mm-mm. That doesn't yield anything. And, you know, we, we also hear this narrative that these young people, they, you know, they, they have no focus. You know, they're just out in the streets marching, disrupting, you know, stopping folks. They, they don't respect law enforcement. Well, if they had no focus, how are they removing prosecutors? You know what I mean? I, I got to give Cleveland a shout out. Those young people got the prosecutor out who um, didn't do his job to make sure that that officer was held accountable who shot the, that boy, a baby boy named Tamir Rice. They got him out, right? So this movement is focused and organized. Listen, shutting down um, 
BART stations and freeways on critical days about interrupting economic flow, right? On Oakland big, knows about that. Right? On big shopping days. That's not just something that happened, right? Like, right. folks are tactical and they're strategic and they're organizers and they're passionate and it's amazing. It is. I mean, we were talking about this earlier. We have to celebrate the wins. You know, I got to just respect to Chicago, to Cleveland, and to Oakland. Shut it down. And, what we're, and to be clear, what we're shutting down is not just, we're not just inconveniencing people. We're stopping what we think is unjust, right? That's what these young people are saying. We're talking about liberation. I mean, it's, 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 it's powerful. It's healing space. Um, but I'm going to leave it to you to ask me something and then for us to transition to the, this piece of greatness she has for y'all later. Well, it's, I'm going to ask the big question because um, okay. I, I think it's important because I think that we've done a lot of great waking up of folks, right? And folks are woke. They woke. Folks are very woke. Mm -hmm. and, and now we've got to figure out how we win, mm. right? And some of us are going to have to peel off and go do this work of winning. And one of the ways, and the Panthers knew it, right? was the unification of our struggle and calling out the evils of America in all of the places America is evil and sort of eating away at the lie of the American dream, right? Or is America is the great hero. And so I wanted you to just talk about a little bit, you know, um, the United States and its war against black people, both here, but also in Haiti and how those things are linked together. It's a big question, but I get asked it a lot <laughs> by, by black comrades who, who know the history of Haiti. But I think freedom lovers should know the history of Haiti. Um, this is not, Haiti is not just for black people. It's for people who love freedom. Um, before America became the land, um, the nation of immigrants, um, became a place where folks came to seek opportunity, Haiti was that place in the Western Hemisphere. That's where folks went to. So in the mid-1800s, um, a lot of black American folks who were still dealing with uh, a slavery system here, you, you set your foot in Haiti, you were free. A lot of German um, and other Eastern European, a lot of Jews, Polish folk, um, and folks from the rest of the region would go to Haiti in pursuit of opportunity. So for me, being a Haitian American is a very fascinating thing because the corporate media... Um, tells me that I'm from the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, but that's not what I know to be true. I'm from the place that is currently the most economically impoverished place, right? Um, in terms of what Haiti symbolizes, Haiti symbolizes the first real successful win. And the win wasn't necessarily to create the Haitian state. The win was to say that we're, gonna, we're going to fight against all three of the major armies, French, who else? Y'all know them, French, the British, who was the third at the time? The Spanish, right? I knew, I just wanted to get to audience participation. <laughs> um, <laughs> and when a group of folks who were part, who were the underling of a system rise up and say no to the system in such a powerful way. And then not just fight for their own liberation and then say, oh, we're gonna help the rest of the region do the same. That's what made Haiti dangerous. You know, I, I argue with a lot of my um, 
politics in Haitian culture is sport, okay? We, we yell and scream like we're watching a boxing match or, or a soccer match or, you know, we're talking about great food or great sex, whatever. Like for us, politics is a sport. We get in it. And one of the things, um, when I want to get folks in consensus, I say to them, I was like, we can't stay at the Haitian Revolution because that means it's just ours. We have to go, what did we do once we got liberated? We helped Simon Bolivar. And the rest is on. If you know the history, if you don't, you should find out what it is. It's a very moving, powerful story. What Haiti represented for, and still represents to this day, is a group of people who now have a history and a legacy of resistance. Haitians are resisting right now. The biggest, one of the biggest fights that's happening in Haiti is, is a climate change fight where Monsanto, when I'm, I'm in the Bay, y'all know about Monsanto, um, where impoverished Haitian farmers are burning Monsanto seeds. Yes, yes. That's right? what I'm talking about. Yes. So you can call us poor all we want, but we, we smart. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we know the game because you have to understand the systemic games to decide to burn the seeds, right? You have to know. You have to understand the internet. So I think, and also Haiti has been a solidarity with black movements here. For very, I mean, for for all movement of liberation. Um, growing up, I grew up. Part of my upbringing was in Boston, and um, I went to one of my friends' house. Was in high school, and her aunt, his her aunt was visiting from Greece, and she was like, "Oh, you're from Haiti?" And I'm like, "Yeah, you know what that is." And she was like, "Yes, Haiti helped my people." Mm. <laughs> you know, Egyptian. Same thing. I mean, it doesn't matter where I go. If, peop if, if, people, if people know their own history, they know that this little place, Haiti was one of the first places to declare war against Hitler. <laughs> yeah, the Jews love Haiti. I lo <laughs> and I tease, I love me some Jews. Um, I love me some a lot of people. But no, I say, I say all this to say this, that you have a, this small island that is a beacon of hope because these are people of resistance and they support resistance around the world, right? That, that is dangerous to economics um, and, white, and white supremacy. That's very dangerous. Um, and you see in this, in this Black Lives moment, the movement is very diverse. There's a lot of immigrants in the movement, you know, who are from all over the world and they're supporting, I mean, Opal Tometi, um, who is executive director of Baji, Opal's on a plane, you know, she's in Germany supporting black folks out there. She's in South Africa, she's all over, she's in Venezuela, right? So this movement for black lives isn't just about black lives in this country. It's focused in that there are some folks who are fighting the local battles because you have to fight where you are, but they are in solidarity with folks who are fighting for liberation around the world. That's, right. That's powerful. That's right. That's powerful. Um, my last question to you is going to lead us to the piece of greatness I mentioned earlier. Um, what is the role of art in the struggle for liberation? I believe that artists are the conscience of our society, or they should be. Art has the ability to push the issue in a way that just conversation sometimes can't my particular practice, which is theater. I get to lock you in a room for 60 minutes, 90 minutes, and you just sit and absorb, right? Art critiques 
society and celebrates society. Um, artists have a job to tell the stories that other people want to ignore. In the Bay, we have an amazing legacy of art as resistance. The murals that go up, the soundtracks that get created behind, you know, the desks that we um, face. We've got artists like The Coup and Dead Prez. I mean, it's just, right, art is resistance. And it threatens the state. It th there's, you know, there's stories all the time of artists who have died for resisting through their art. So art, art is and should remain on the front lines of struggle. So in Haiti, um, as they do in Africa, as they do in many different places, we have a saying that is, is it's an affirmation. It's a spiritual calling. Um, it's like saying amen. It's like saying right on. It's like saying amandla, all in one word. It's ayibobo. But usually when you say it, you, you erase a couple of times. So I would say ayibobo, and you guys would respond. So let me know you heard me. So ayibobo. Aye bobo. Aye bobo. That means right on. That's the way to acknowledge it. We acknowledge the ancestors. We acknowledge the spirits that move through you to do that. Um, and I just want to thank you for. Um, I'm always fascinated by the courage in the artist. It's, you know, especially artists of oppressed peoples, right? Because you, you are our voice. You are our truth. So thank you. As Jay says, thank you. You've been listening to the podcast for the California Institute of Integral Studies. If you liked what you heard, find us and subscribe on iTunes or listen on our website, ciis.edu slash public programs.